Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a bold and balanced life. So when I asked today's guest, Dr. Monica Agarwal, to join me on this podcast, I figured we'd talk about her plant-based advocacy at the University of Florida where she's an assistant professor of medicine and director of integrative cardiology and prevention. Dr. Agarwal has done a great job of, over many years, advocating, pushing, uh, developing, prototyping, and getting into the world a plant-based menu for the University of Florida health system cardio and vascular patients. And the American College of Lifestyle Medicine did a feature on her. And so I figured we were going to talk about the power of plants to heal. And like a lot of us in the plant-based lifestyle medicine world, Dr. Agarwal has her own story of a journey into illness and discovering lifestyle to get her out of it. She had uh, developed rheumatoid arthritis following medical school when she was now working really hard as a a young female cardiologist in a very male-dominated, male-friendly profession. She decided she was going to have kids. She had three kids in, a, in just a, few, a couple of years, and it took its toll. And so I thought we were going to talk about her journey back to wellness and the journey of discovering plants and lifestyle and then bringing that to her patients. And we did. We did talk about that uh, eventually. But we took a fascinating detour into... Um, what I would call the gender politics of medicine and of cardiology as a subspecialty in particular. Because like when she was on this career track to success and acclaim as a cardiologist, she was really like doing the man's thing, following the path that had been laid out for men by men. And the idea of having a family, of, of, of having kids, of dividing your loyalty between the profession and your personal life is a decision that men generally don't have to make or don't have to make in the same way. And what was fascinating to me was how her illness, Dr. Agarwal's illness, made her a better doctor, a more powerful healer, a more empathetic and compassionate listener to her patients than she would have been had she just succeeded. And so we got into a discussion about what cardiology, what medicine could look like if it was not so male-dominated, if it acknowledged the strengths of the feminine 
and utilize those strengths for the benefit of, of patients and society at large. Before we jump in, the obligatory announcements. First of all, I am doing much better health-wise. Thank you for asking. Uh, I know it's been a little rough to listen to me for the last couple of weeks, especially if you have high degrees of empathy, but I'm feeling much better and have even uh, resumed singing in the shower. You'll be, you'll be happy to know. Although uh, my tastes these days have inexplicably uh, shifted to uh, mid-90s top 40. Secondly, speaking of uh, wonderful sounds, Sick to Fit is available on audible.com and, and the Apple uh, bookstore, I guess, as, as an audio book. So you can uh, listen to Josh and me as you go about your day, as you go on your walks and runs. Um, and if you have gotten the book, either as Kindle or a paperback or the audio, we would really appreciate a review on Amazon or Audible helping us spread the word. And by the way, that book on Kindle is still free. So just go to Amazon, search for Sick to Fit, and you can download it to your Kindle, to your iPhone, your tablet, to your laptop, whatever, whatever works for you. Secondly, uh, Well Start Health is beginning a new cohort, probably uh, beginning of April or middle of April. If you're interested in signing up for that, wellstarthealth.com. And a uh, quick story, last week, all my websites went down uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So just when uh, the podcast aired and people were starting to listen to it, all the sites went down and I discovered that there was some sort of problem um, that my host discovered and they were really, really slow in getting me access to even begin to fix it. So I switched to a new host and it looks like hosting for the podcast, this is great news by the way, is going to be about 60 to $100 a month because the podcast has become so popular. It just, you know, the host that I was on was saying that I was you know, stealing resources from their other customers, which wasn't cool, which means I need a much more robust hosting system. I can't get by on 15, 20 bucks a month for plant yourself. So um, that's all to say that this podcast costs money. It costs me money out of pocket. It, it's a lot of time that I, I hope is obvious, the amount of time that I spend preparing and finding guests and uh, producing the show and releasing it and promoting it and all that. Um, and it's free, just like the Sick to Fit is completely free on Kindle, but we hope people will buy the paperback and the audiobook to help support us. And we hope the people who find their way to that book will, um, some of them, sign up for Well Start Health, which is our, uh, our money-making venture so that we can uh, keep doing what we're doing. Um, and the podcast itself costs lots and lots of money. And I encourage people to help me defray that cost because, as I said, the podcast is free. But, it's, but I, I'm starting to think about it. It's free for those who can't afford it. And it's supported by those who can afford it. So if you can afford to help support this podcast, which doesn't have any advertising, um, then you can do so at patreon.com um, and just look for Plant Yourself, or you can go to plantyourself.com and look for the Patreon button in the sidebar. And even a buck a month um, goes a long way. First of all, it increases my visibility on Patreon so other people can find it, and it lets me know that you and I are in this together. So if you can't afford to pay, then obviously just keep listening. That's cool. That's why I do this. But if you can, um, if you can help make it, continue to make it free for people who can't afford it, um, that would be awesome. If you're not comfortable with Patreon, of course, I, you can always just do PayPal or, uh, you know, email me, hj at plantyourself.com and ask for my address and you can send, you know, checks, um, 
cars, boats, planes, pianos, whatever you know works for you. Um, yeah, let's let's uh, let's do this together. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Without further ado, Dr. Monica Agarwal, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I would love for you to just start by telling us, you know, who you are, and then we'll we'll get into kind of the story and and, and what you're up to. Sure. So um, I'm an adult cardiologist at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, so that's in Florida, so Gainesville, Florida. Um, and I am the director of integrative cardiology and prevention. So that means that I focus on lifestyle, nutrition, but also medications that prevent um, and reduce risk of heart disease. Gotcha. And so you, were you, have you always been sort of integrative and preventive? Are you asking me, how did this all start? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, like you, I know, I know you, you have gone very plant-based, but it sounds like you are already thinking sort of integratively and preventively even before then? Sure. So, um, you know, my, you know, I'm Indian by ethnicity. I've always been aware and um, interested in the role of lifestyle in health. I did an integrative medicine fellowship at the University of Arizona, one of those telemedicine conferences while I was um, telemedicine fellowships while I was still a cardiology general fellow or general cardiology fellow at the University of Maryland. So just to clarify, in medicine, there's levels of training. You start out as a medical student, then you go into residency, which is turning into an internal medicine doctor, and then you do three years of what we call a fellowship, which is when you train to become a cardiologist. So while I was in that training to be a cardiologist, I did an integrative medicine fellowship. So I already had a lot of interest even before I myself um, became more interested in the nutrition aspect. But at that point, I was focused more on yoga and exercise and the impact of sleep and stress. Um, my shift on nutrition really only came when I had a personal scare of illness myself. Now, you know, as cardiologists and as physicians in general, uh, it's uh, sad to report that we have very little knowledge of nutrition. So that's... Um, you know, I actually published on this where we showed that cardiologists in particular, like nine over 90 percent of cardiologists will say they receive little to no um, education in nutrition in their entire career. Huh. So that's medical school onward. And so I was one of those as well. And so while we talked to our patients in clinics and we would say, you know, eat better and exercise, we never really gave people the tools to do that. And, you know, me being more aware of it, maybe I would give a little bit more information and say, oh, you know, that means cut out your fast food, your processed foods, um, and, um, and then, yeah, and try to walk this many minutes. And the American Heart Association gives us guidelines to say that to tell people to exercise for 30 minutes, five to seven times a day at least. Um, a, week, then, a week, right? A, a week. A oh, week. I'm sorry. A week. Okay. I don't know if I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely a week. So 150 minutes ideally per week. And so we have those guidelines, and so that's what we would tell people. Um, but then you go out as a patient, you go out, and you're like, oh, okay, I got to do this. But it doesn't have – you're not providing any tools. But that's unfortunately the way medicine is and has been for so long. So around um, – I guess it's been now seven and a half years ago, uh, I became really sick. Um, and when I became really sick, I, for, I became the patient. And it was very interesting to become the patient and very humbling. And when you become the patient, you realize that you, the medicines that you've been giving out for so many years, you, you don't want to actually take them. 
And that was a very interesting and humbling experience for me to be like, wait a second, because this medicine has all these side effects. And while the doctors are telling you and me as the patient, that small person in that chair, I remember that feeling so well. I remember when the doctor would say stuff like, well, you know, it's not a big deal to take this medicine. The side effect profile is very small. It's one in X number of thousands of people will have a problem. But when you're the patient, you imagine yourself as that one in X number of thousand patients. And that's something I didn't fully understand until I myself became a patient. Yeah, I, re I remember I was down in uh, in South Africa in like 1992, and I had a really, uh, was it was, you know, three-week trip, and I had a really bad stomach upset. And my wife's cousin was a physician who, rec you know, brought me this pill. And I said, you know, okay, great. What, what are the side effects? She said, oh, like one in a million people will develop a facial tick uh, that doesn't really go away. I'm like, no way. <laughs> like, right. I think that, that's the gap that we as physicians have fundamentally not understood because we haven't, we don't realize that it's, it, when you are the patient, no one, no one puts themselves, when we think we put ourselves, we're taught in medical school how to empathize with the patient. But until I think you go through an experience where you yourself have been sick, it's sometimes very hard to understand what that actually means. And I my whole practice of medicine has changed because of my own experience. And so, you know, I think if you haven't had that kind of experience, I can imagine myself 10 years or seven years ago, um, just still practicing the same way in a very different fashion, eat better, exercise, have a nice day. Mm. So let's let's talk about your illness. Now you, you you wrote on your blog, you know, like I was reading about your pre-illness life, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I couldn't have I couldn't have done that for three days, let alone right. for a decade. Um, can, you, can you kind of take take us through like your life pre-illness, and then what happened? Sure. So you know, I think a lot of people when they hear about my life ahead of time think I'm total. I was totally crazy, and I probably I was. I certainly was. But from my perspective at the time, I felt I was doing what I needed to do to get it all done. And remember, when you're in cardiology, it's, it's a subspecialty. That's why it's so rare. There are not as many women in it um, because it takes you and you're continuing to train all the way through your baby making years. And so um, when I finally finished training and it's it's seen as a, a level of weakness, nobody actually says it. But it's almost a weakness to like get pregnant while you're in your training because then somebody has to carry your burden and it's all of all the work that has to be done. And so nobody talks about it. No one would actually say that. But it's sort of this unsaid thing that you don't you just don't do that. So you continue to wait until you finish all of your training. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, I like have to have a baby right now because I'm never going to be able to have the babies. And then I'm going to be advanced maternal age and then it's over. You know, and so that's how you feel as a subspecialty female physician, sadly. And, you know, that's a whole nother topic. But um, well, can, I, can I ask you about that? Like if oh, you, you know, because I know that there's there's a lot of legacy around medical education and um, around like this is how I was trained. So this is how I'm going to train you. And I had to go through all this stuff. So, that, you know, it's only fair that you go through it, too. If looking back now, if you were to redesign cardiology, can you see yourself doing it in a way that's, you know, women of childbearing age friendly or even like healthy human friendly? Or do you think that everything you went through was absolutely crucial for your education and for your ability to perform now? So 
you know, a huge topic, Howard, and one that I love and I'm and, and sort of very interested in, and you can cut me off at any point. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I think that, so could it have been done differently? Absolutely, 100%. Um, but would it be done differently, you know? And so um, I think that the need to sort of keep everything equal, like women and men are equal and and I believe that. I believe I'm better and stronger and equal at least to every man, if not better than every man. You know, and we're taught that, you know, I grew up that way with my father teaching me that. And I try to teach my girls that, too. I have two girls. And so I want them to always feel that they're as good, if not better. So but with that, with the ring comes Mr. Schwartz, doesn't it? Because then you have to keep up. You have to be able to keep up. Wait, with what? All- with with- oh, yeah. <laughs> That. Isn't that pop culture? <laughs> it's, it sounds like a Jewish joke that I've heard. I just, I just wanted to make sure that. I don't know. He always says, "With the ring comes Mr. Schwartz." Like if you, if you get the ring from him, you always get what Mr. Schwartz always comes with it. Right? Yeah, like this. This was the joke. Like the the Jewish ladies are are discussing. Like you know, one of them holds this this this, this ring. She says, "Oh my God, that's the Plotskin diamond, isn't it?" And he says, "Yes, it, it comes with the Plotskin curse." She says, "Oh, what's that?" Plotskin. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly, okay. <laughs> exactly and so when you end up coming into then these training programs, you it would it's not that no one told it's not that anyone told me that I couldn't take the time off or that it wasn't that women can't have the time off and you can't use your FMLA, but it would have been a sign of weakness. And perhaps that's my own flaw or the flaw of so many of us who feel like we have to sort of be equal and we can't be seen as weaker than our male counterparts. And so when you ask, could it have been done differently? 100%. Would it be done differently? I don't know the answer to that question. It's one I consider a lot. You know, I mentor a lot of junior, junior, so trainees. So, you know, I'm in an academic center. So there's levels of trainees who come to me and ask me, would you recommend I do this? Or how should I navigate this job? And the answer I give them is very different now than what I would have given them when I was starting out the process where I said, of course, you're going to be a full-time partner and work full-time and do everything because that's what you should do because you worked hard. That's what I would have said maybe seven, eight years ago and now I would say a very different thing, which would be to honor the family, take care of yourself, work hard, do a great job, but do a great job at a lot of things because you can't be in one lesson that I've learned harshly and um, importantly is that you can't be 100% of everything. And I think that any woman, a lot of women that are strong, like, you know, and who grew up the way I did would say, and who maybe haven't gone through what I've gone through would say, I can do, I can do everything. I can do everything, but you can't because eventually the body breaks down. So take you back then to where I was when I started this process. So it maybe gives you a little background to who I was. So yeah, I was working full time or close to full time. I had um, three children under four years old at one point. So I had a four-year-old who was uh, just finishing getting out of diapers. I had a two-and-a-half-year-old, and then I, oh, she told me a two-and-a-half-year-old, and then I had a newborn. So I always joke about how I had one on the breast, one in my arm, and one, car- you know, when I'd get home, one would be carrying, I'd be carrying along my foot, who was just like, mom, don't go, don't go. And so that was my life. And so, yeah, who does that? Who has three kids in four years? But you kind of have to. If you're in the world that I was in, or at least I felt I had to. So then, you know, you're working full time, you're caring for these three kids, 
but you know the importance of lifestyle and you know the importance of exercise and you do so you feel in the person who's used to doing things and doing them well starts doing all of them and that was me so in as a sacrifice to working all of the time um, taking a lot of call, um, managing my kids, wanting to be that full-time mother because of that mother complex, right? Another whole issue is the mother's guilt. Uh, Howard, I'm not sure you expected all of this drama when you started talking to me. <laughs> but uh, there is, there's so much mother's guilt and the anxiety of being a mom and balancing that and mother's guilt of being the one who goes to work and then comes home. There's so much of that as well. And so I always, you know, would come home and I would want to puree sweet potatoes so that the babies or the children would eat healthy foods. And I would have, you know, and I'd be pumping and nursing at home, uh, pumping at, at work and nursing at home. And I was just trying to do everything perfectly. Oh, I have to go for a run in the morning because I got to keep healthy. And so all these things would be in my head. I mean, it was a crazy place. So what I'd sacrifice was sleep. And I was always stressed. If you if I fall asleep randomly in the middle of something, I'd wake up with a start. I'm like, oh my God, what am I what am I late for? Check mm. the time. Because that was my life. It was a life of high stress, high anxiety, and one I wouldn't wish on anyone. And it sounds you know, it sounds like like and we haven't talked about the the illness and your uh, you know, the aftermath and your recovery, but but what I'm getting is that you're you're a very different doctor now because of it oh yeah and a better doctor i like to think so i mean i i um so i had a lot of anger when i had my kid my third kid and felt i'd pushed the envelope too far and how could this have happened to me and you know people would say why are you having a third child anyway you already have a boy and a girl i mean people always weigh in on your life (laughs) and so I had a lot of people say that and I remember thinking after she came and I got started getting sick that it's because I pushed it because I pushed it this has happened so I I carried a lot of anger and the irony of it all is it's only because I got sick it's only because I got sick that I was able to understand really how to take care of patients it's only because of that and so I always tell people it wasn't my daughter who hurt me it was my daughter who saved me and so mm. that's the true gift she gave me the true gift that my kid has given to me yeah I mean so what comes to mind is you say like yes you could do cardiology fellowship differently you could do medical education differently but we might not but like is there a way to do it that could have given you the kind of empathy and balance and soul that you clearly put into your practice now, like without having to push you to to the edge of death, you know? Right. So I think, I think the key lies in mentorship. I think the key lies in women having women to look up to and to see how to run the, because the world of subspecialty medicine, surgery, subspecialty medicine, it's the same. We're all in this, in this, if any woman you talk to, there's a little club of women in subspecialties that discuss um, these issues. And, you know, nobody talks about it with the world, but these are things that we all talk about, about how we have to compete. And I think the key lies in that mentorship where we have other people to look up to, to say, it's okay to step away. It's okay to take a moment for yourself. And these are certain conversations that I have now with my fellows and my trainees to remind them that it's okay. It's, it's okay. You are not less because you made a different choice. You are not less. And that's something I think people really need to think hard about is who is, 
who are the choices you're making? Who are they for? And that, that takes a lot of soul searching. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned the word compete, which, which maybe, maybe there's other models of how to succeed in the medical profession. You know, that sort of competes sounds very male to me. Like there's this pyramid and all the guys are trying to like, you know, claw their way to the top of it as, as, as opposed to being someone who is of, of healing service and presence to, to the people who come across your, your, your office door. And an important comment and point and very wise. I would certainly say that internal medicine doctors now are 50 entering medical school that are going into internal medicine are almost 50% women now. And so into internal medicine, that sort of non-subspecialty medicine, the trend is changing. So you'll see in internal medicine practices, there's a lot more focus on family. Um, but you know, this is a huge issue, Howard, because you know, the hospitals aren't geared for this. You know, I used to, there was no place to, for instance, to pump in the hospital. You know, like, why is there no pumping room? Well, there is one, It's but it's on the other side of the hospital. And, you know, okay, so I've got a thousand things to do. And then I got, I've got these engorged breasts to be, sorry, too much information. But, and then I got to go over and I got to pump. And so I got to go, I have to walk five or seven minutes away just to pump so that then I can come back and continue to do my work. And so, you know, it's just there's so many levels where there isn't support for women. Yeah. And so there, it's just a, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And this what came to mind, this may be it's just like the, the worst analogy in the world. But I just, you know, I saw the movie uh, Hidden Figures about these African-American women working for NASA as, as computers. And the fact that the, you know, the colored girls rest, restroom was like 10 minutes away. Right. Like that's that serves nobody. Yeah, and that's what life is like, and you know, and so I used to have a sign that I'd put, luckily when I was in the office, you know, I had an office door, but there was no lock on my door. There was no lock on my door. So like, you know, you ask, we'll put a lock on the door. Why do you need a lock on your door? Because I have to nurse, you know, like they're just, you know, it's just, there's such a disconnect and so many, so there's so many social issues that can uh, be discussed. But Howard, I'm not sure that's what you want to talk to me about today is about <laughs> women in medicine. <laughs> I, I am, I am loving this conversation. Um, I mean, you know, I can, I can talk about broccoli only so many, you know, interviews per month like this. So true. I mean, I am, look, my, my, what, what I love to do is to have honest conversations with people with, uh, with, with insights that, you know, that make my life better. And this is like, this is really fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so happy that you're willing to go here and, and share all this. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's 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 this. I mean, it, it's also possible because I. I mean, I'm I'm going through such a conflict currently in my life because again that pull continues and you know where I'm sort of in this academic center. I'm producing. I'm super productive. I work very very hard. Nobody would ever say oh that she's a slacker. I'm not that kind of person. And I put in the time and my patients are doing fabulously. Yet somehow I can't seem to work out the schedule so that I can be home with my kids because no one on the upper tiers of education or in my group are understand that. And so they will say, um, well, you know, I understand you have kids, but everyone has kids. I'm like, well, that's true. Um, but that's not true because I'm the mom. And so maybe 
that's not fair to say, well, there's a different, you know, who cares, gender equality, a mom and a dad can be equal, and, there, and if, as long as there's one parent at home, that matters. But it matters to me. Like, I notice my girls in particular, they need me at home. So how does one then keep navigating this world where you are being pushed and pushed and pushed to do more, be more productive, stay as long as everyone else, but yet it doesn't work for your family. You know, somebody has to raise my kids and I don't want to look back 20, 30 years from now and say, I didn't, I did a great job in cardiology, but I, I wasn't a great parent. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what's coming to me is like the idea of feminism as, you know, women are equal to men and should have equal opportunity to succeed in a man's world on man's terms. Like, like that seems like a very low bar. Like, okay, you get to, you get to be a man now. As opposed to like what I think, you know, the, really the promise of feminism, regardless of, ma- of man or woman, like the, the feminine versus masculine principle is that we need a lot more of the feminine principle in medicine in business, in government, in society, and just having women sacrifice the rest of their lives to succeed in a traditional male-dominated command and control environment, like, like a hospital, like, like traditional medical practice, like it, it seems like women can bring a lot more than just mm-hmm. succeeding on men's terms. Does that make sense? It makes 100% sense. And what exactly, I mean, you speak to my heart because... Why is it that I have to compete in this world? But it's only because I have competed and succeeded that I my voice is important. You know, people don't see if somebody 10 years ago would have said these things, they would have been considered weak by the rest of the world. Isn't it? Isn't it that why we're still having trouble finding a female president that we think is worthy? You know, there's, oh, is she strong enough or she's going to be too weak? You know, but that again, I don't want to get political. I just mean that, you know, certainly there's there's just there's so many, it's only because I've gone through 10 years and kept up with every man and done everything that I needed to do that I'm able to reflect back and say, it's okay to step back. But if I had said that when I first started out, I don't think people would have given me as much time and dignity. Sure. And I think, I think we're definitely in, you know, maybe a long arc of transition in, in society, but I'm just, you know, the, the value I mean, like, you know, we, we got together to talk about, like, you know, plant-based nutrition in the office. But even that, like the idea of food feels to me to come from a very feminine, nurturing place. I mean, literally, it comes from Mother Earth. Right. As, you know, and, and when you... And the mother is primarily the provider of the food. So I always tell patients and tell people, I said, if it's a man that comes to my clinic, I say, bring your spouse because I always bring I bring your partner, whoever it is that is the person in your life. And then I'll ask them, who does the cooking? Who does the shopping? Because most of the time, and it's not always, and I do have a lot of single sex um, families in my clinic, but so that doesn't always follow. But, um, but most of the time in a traditional male-female relationship, the female is doing the cooking and the, and the shopping. And so I always tell people, if I get to the woman, I get to the family. And so absolutely. So if I, you know, women, the, t- the concept of eating, the concept of eating healthy, the concept of nutrition, my giving this knowledge, me giving them practical information is very feminine. Um, but, you know, that in- leads to a whole nother issue of interest to me, which is value based care. For instance, 
you know, if I see a patient in 15 minutes, I can bill a high level acuity patient and I offer that patient a catheterization procedure, I can bill like the highest level of billing. Mm -hmm. But if I offer them a alternative, like a nutrition and lifestyle based um, education, I have to justify my billing by based on the amount of time I spend with that person. So because my acuity wasn't as high or because I handled it differently, my billing would be differently, my difference. So then the other thing that you'd say, so, so that's one really dysfunctional problem. But then when the patients continue to get better, because my patients are getting better, then I, in theory, over time will have less volume. So if you have less volume, then you are less productive. So you can see how this could be a very dysfunctional process, right? Because insurance or hospitals are driven by how many patients you see. Well, if all my patients are getting better, then I'm going to actually eventually become less productive. So where is the shift in insurance where they're offering insurance for value-based care rather than productivity based on acuity of care? Again, issue. Yes, yeah, it sounds like, you know, how, how the military helps with GDP, like the more things we blow up and the more expensive ways we have of blowing it up, the better our economy is doing. That's exactly right. It's mm-hmm. exactly. Right. And, and you, you know, you said my patients are getting better in sort of a tone of voice that's, that, that leads me to believe that that's not the like that's not normal for cardiologists. Like, is that I guess what you have to ask yourself what it is to be better and my my concept of being better may be different than my my fellow cardiologists. For instance, well, it's like how would how would a pa- like let's start with how a patient would would define being better. I'm guessing that your definition is more closely aligned with with humans. <laughs> so, I think being better means to be empowered to take care of yourself. I think being better means feeling control back in your life and I think being to being healthy and getting better means that you have you feel good on a daily basis or that you are better than you were before you entered my life or the doctor's life. So those are the things I sort of look at as my value. But another person might say, you know, and I hear this a lot that you know, and, there, and there's definitely, and I don't want to undermine the role and importance of high acuity care. If you have a heart attack and you are in the middle of having a heart attack, there is nothing I can give you in your nutrition and the or your lifestyle within that 24 hour that's going to save you from having that heart attack. So you need to go to the cath lab, get a balloon and a stent and be done. And that's that, that there's no way around that. So there, there's so much importance and value in what high acuity care is. And I value that and I honor that. So I don't want to imply that I don't. Um, but I think that so much of the time there's this middle zone, isn't it, where they come in with some symptoms and they get put on just medicines. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a medicine. Obviously, I have. And um, the side effects that one can have from a medication are mind-blowing. And there's some statistic out there, and I'd have to check the number exactly, but that elderly patients, so our senior population, are averaging like eight medications 
per person. So just think about that. Think about the interaction, the side effects from one medicine, the interactions between the medications, and the side effect profile will be it's staggering. Because when I people ask, well, what's the side effect of this med? I have to say, well, this one causes fatigue. This one is going to difficulty with erections, and you may have depression. And oh, by the way, this one is going to give you excess sweating, and this one's going to give you a, a lower extremity swelling. And and you think about what you these patients can have as a as a whole. It, it's it's mind blowing. So. When you ask, and these are these are like like statins or blood thinners or you know, ACE inhibitors. Like, what what sort of classes are we talking about? All of them. So you know, some of them. Um, it depends on the medicine. So um, statins can cause some muscle aches, but overall are extremely well tolerated. And I'm a huge fan of statins. So just to be clear, I believe in the role of statins in healthcare. Um, and in terms of cardiovascular care. And so they have some mild muscle aches. Sometimes you can have some liver dysfunction, but then there's some blood pressure medicines that make your um, sweat, that make you swell in your legs. There's some that make you wicked constipated. Nobody wants to talk about that. And then, but you're wicked constipated and going home with this medicine and you're constipated all the time. There's some people um, <clears throat> that have had three children and uh, they're women and they see a male physician and nobody is asking them and puts them on a diuretic that makes them pee. So all they do is pee all day and they can't hold their urine. But no one's asking that question. Does no one, so for one of the first questions I ask a woman is, how many kids have you had? Mm. And so I, when they say they've had, oh, two or three kids, I was, can you hold your urine? And so because a lot of women can't, especially post-menopausal, nobody talks about that stuff. And I'll say, and they'll say, actually, and they'll tell me what their deals are. Well, I'm not going to put that person on a diuretic or a fluid pill that's going to make them pee all the time. And I've just made their quality of life worse. So when I tell you that I'm trying to make people better, I want people to leave better, happier, and more feeling better about themselves when they leave me than when they came. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that that's correlated very highly to getting people off of medications that they don't need to be on if they make lifestyle changes. Absolutely. I think people also need to, you know, I think people give in, you know, they kind of feel that this is the only option and maybe that's the only option they've been provided. And so much of the time they are just sort of resigned to the fact that this is the only option. This is what their doctor told them. This is what they need to do. And so the point of me coming on these, in, on these, on these interviews and doing these co these conversations and talks is for this reason alone, which is to say, look, you can be empowered to have some control over your health, which I think is the most, not most, but very important part of this whole thing. Because when I, um, when I got sick, I remember how I felt like I, I felt so, uh, out of, I remember sitting in this big wheelchair cause they didn't have ones my size. And I was like this tiny little person in this mm. gown. And I remember that feeling like somebody is dictating and somebody came by transport and carried me, pushed me around. And that's a perfect example of what it means to be sick because you lack control. Somebody tells you where you go. Somebody tells you where you sit. Somebody just is in charge of you and your care. And so what I want to do, what I think medicine is about is empowering the patient to have their own tools so that they can they can heal themselves. Now, I, we may not perfect people. We may not cure you of your illness, but we can make you a whole lot better than you were. I mean, again, my threshold is not to perfect you. It's not to cure you. It's to make you better than when you came in. And sometimes that's as good as it gets. And some people, if we're lucky, we do cure them. Like myself, how lucky I feel, how blessed I feel. But 
it's not always so easy. Some people, we don't get that far. But, you know, I think sometimes the thing I say in my clinic is I tell people, accept what your body has to give and then push it further, which is the idea that, you know, your body is sick. Let's accept that and not feel bad and mad about what it is or what it isn't. Let's take what we have, the tools that we have, and let's make you better with what we have, what tools we have. Let's go a little further every day. And that's what we do. Sometimes I get people to walk. You know, I work with these heart failure patients. I remember there's a great story um, of a woman who came in on a walker. She had a heart pump in. So she needs a, she needs a transplant and she has a heart. Um, she had a, um, she was with a walker because she was actually in her fifties and had a, or maybe she was late forties and had a nine year old child. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, she had a trauma, an injury during her surgery. So she had pain down her leg. So she required a walker after um, getting her heart pump put in. So remember, just to clarify, a heart pump is when your heart is so sick and weak that it can't pump fluid to the rest of the body. Um, and so the pump does it for you. So it's a major surgery and it's a bridge usually, not always, but it can be a bridge to a heart transplant. So she came to me because she was referred by her cardiologist and she couldn't get a heart transplant because she was too overweight and she was too overweight. And you have to be a certain weight down because otherwise the surgical risk is higher. So she came to me and she was telling me she was laying in bed almost 18 hours a day. So she would get in bed because she was so sick and she didn't like the feeling of the pump and her leg was hurting from the surgery. And so she would stay in the bed, maybe not even 18, maybe more, because she would wake up in the morning and then she'd just kind of lay in bed. And her husband was this amazing and lovely man and they had this fabulous relationship. And he would he would bring her breakfast, lunch and dinner in bed. Mm. And so she and then she had this nine year old boy who would go to and from school with the dad and she would just stay in bed all day. And so when she came to me, this is the person I saw. And so I know that I'm not going to fix, take her pump out of her. I'm not going to make her need for the transplant go away necessarily. But what I did do was I worked with her for six months. And by the end, every time a little bit more, every time a little more. When I first started with her, all I asked her to do was not be in bed. She was not allowed to touch the bed from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Not even go near it. And so sometimes just those simple things and slowly and slowly, I said, today, this month, you have to make one meal every week. So slowly and slowly, just giving people that power back. By the end of six months, she not only looked gorgeous because she started taking care of herself again. She's wearing earrings and makeup and she has a pump. So she has to carry this pump in her hand and it's heavy. We got her a backpack. We got her walking. She lost 20 pounds on a plant-based diet. She felt energized and felt great. And when the, she came in at six months, she gave me this huge hug. And she goes, Dr. A, look at me. And I was like, oh, my God, where's the walker? And she's like, I don't need it anymore. So what did we give her? We didn't give her a transplant, but we gave her her control back. We gave her the power of her life back. Mm-hmm. And that's that's great. That's what I want. And that, feel, that sounds like like... You know, again, I was going to talk to you because, you know, oh, plant-based doctor, you know, how, but like this is really far more fundamental, a, a, a difference that everything else springs from this, that, you know, from what I understand of traditional cardiology, certainly traditional medicine, is it's typically a journey of increasing dependence on something outside of yourself, whether it's a, a procedure or a medication that, you know, no one who goes on 
um, you know, blood pressure meds or statins in a traditional setting thinks that they're going to get off of them, right? You're sort of, you're on this for life. The do- if someone who's pre-diabetic is going to get, you know, um, this and then this and then this, and eventually, like we know where that ends up. And you're, you're talking about a, a fundamentally different business model. And, and, right. and a value-based care. Like the difference is we are trying to offer you value. But is that is that going to be lucrative for a hospital to consider? And the sad reality is, so there's a group, and I can tell you this, that I know this story, that they, um, the, the cardiologist is doing super good work in value-based care, value, and got called into the office of sort of one of the administrators, like, what's going on? Like, you know, you're not as productive as you used to be. And his comment was, well, well, everybody's getting better. I mean, they're just getting better. And that's like, wait, that disconnect is like, huh, you know, and so, you know, he's doing everything right for patients. But then how does the hospital become successful? Like who's winning in this battle when and and there's just so many layers here, right? Like there's the insurance and there's the hospitals and there's a physician and there's a patient. And at the end of the day, who is this all about? Well, you know, if you strip away all those people, it just comes down to that poor little person who's being given four or five more medicines and will come in for this procedure. And again, it's not that I don't believe that some procedures are important, but there's so much more you can do with lifestyle to empower you to get better that you don't need as many procedures. I mean, there, I can, you know, I can. There's just so many stories of people who are getting better, and and I don't just provide nutrition. I mean, we meditate in our clinics. We have we have yoga mats. We do yoga. We do so many different things because I think people need very different things, and it's that whole giving them back their life so they don't feel like this is they don't that feel that resignation that there's more to this that they can they can heal themselves. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier that I think it was a survey you said that ninety percent of cardiologists have had like no nutritional education. I'm guessing the number would be higher if you asked about yoga education or, you know, stress management education or social support education. But like for me, if I, if, if like I have had zero education in fixing cars. So when my car breaks, I don't think I can fix it. So I take it like there's a, there's a form of, of humility that, I, that it's sort of lacking, right? Like, and, and it sounds like from your story that it was kind of your own descent into helpless patientdom that maybe helped you open up to recognizing where you were ignorant and where you needed to grow? Certainly. I mean, yes. So greater than 90% of physicians will say they have little to no nutrition education. That's true. Number two, what you said is also true, that the education, oh, I don't have survey data, that that the education on lifestyle in terms of yoga or stress management or tai chi or qigong or some of these sort of other sort of mindful movement exercises is also extremely limited. Um, and, um, and yeah, it was my own personal desire to sort of get to the core of what what made me better like getting better I mean that dark place that you feel as a patient I can't even express to you the sadness a person like me would feel when I went through this process because I'm not that person right in your mind you're this intense always successful always winning person and then to sort of have that get sick and then you're like wait this doesn't connect 
And so for a person like me, I fall probably fell harder than maybe the average person who would say, well, suck it up. Like you just got sick, like get over it and move on. Mm. But I didn't. And that dark place is one that I, I really learn from because it teaches me to then see other people's dark places. Yeah. You know, I had a man come in the other day who's an internal medicine doctor. Doctor, I see a load of physicians, by the way, in my clinic. And so I see a lot of physicians in my prevention clinic. And the irony is because they don't want to take any medicine, right? So the docs don't want to take the medicines they've been prescribing. So I see a load of physicians. So he was a physician and he um, he's overweight and we were talking about his weight and what he wanted to get from our visit. And one of the most important questions I ask is, what do you expect from me? What, what am I to give you here? And so he was telling me a little bit about his life. And one of the things that I told him at the beginning was, let's just make one thing clear. As a physician, you are not expected to know a lot about nutrition. You are not expected to know more than the average person because you are a physician. And so I don't expect anything from you. And I don't judge you for who you are because you are a physician. Because he was feeling and he started crying. And he was crying as a physician saying, because he felt, he's like, you know, you're so right that as physicians, we're expected to know so much about all these things. Like he shouldn't be overweight because he's a physician and he should know better because he should know how to eat. But the sad thing is no one's ever taught him. Like, how is he to know how to eat? And then the expectation that just because you are a physician, you should know how to eat or now how to heal yourself is also a disconnect. Everybody expects so much as a, from you as a physician that you start holding yourself to this ideal that you should know this stuff. Like, how could I not know how to heal myself or get better? And so to see his tears was really humbling because it made me realize that we, we don't give ourselves as physicians enough. We don't say it's okay to ourselves enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's... Play like playing that game of of like I should like I should be able to do this. It just it seems like what it does is it it, it moves you farther and farther from reality. Yeah. And it's like I I I I would want my physician to be reality based. Like forget like value based is extra, but just like reality based. Like yeah, I think that's a good comment. Reality based. I like that. Um, yeah, but I don't, I, I think that I'm not sure everybody feels that way. First of all, I think maybe the newer generation of people do. I mean, people leave me as patients sometimes. And I think that, um, that not everybody likes me. And that's something I've had to accept as well, is that some people want a physician who stands above and tells them this is what you're supposed to do. And they want to do it. And then they want to go home and do that thing. Yeah. And some people don't want to be provided with tools and be told that what they've been doing is, is not maybe the best option, that there is a better option because they want to stay they are happy in doing what they've been doing. And I also respect that. I have to learn that not everybody wants those tools or wants to have that. And they feel their power is in listening to their physician. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I kind of want to like just skip to the present. Um, mm. I feel like, you know, like your, 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 your story with rheumatoid arthritis is, you know, it was very compelling, and I feel like I kind of want to skip over it and just get to, like, where what you're up to now. So, you know, I went on your blog. I saw this amazing sheet of paper that has the menu of the you know University of Florida Hospital at Gainesville, where you, where 
Were you instigated? Yes. Like I'm like, a, they don't know what to do with me. <laughs> well, so eventually they're just starting to give in, right? Because you're just, yes, just, I just call it, it's it, like I'm an insidiously patient and I, you know, say what I need with a smile. <laughs> uh-huh. So tell me, how, how, like, how did that, how did that come about? What was, uh, what was your pathway to, to saying, Hey, we let's, let's on an institutional level, teach people to take care of themselves. You know, so it, it hasn't been an easy road. So it's not that it's been hard. It just, it's not like I could walk in there and say, Hey, you know, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, I started in university of Florida at Shands hospital in two and a half years ago. And when I first started within months, I was meeting with dietary and I was telling them this is the, where I'd like things to go. So remember the standard meal after you, have a heart attack is to get like beef and uh, hamburger and french fries or oh. a steak or a, a corned beef sandwich or something of, of that nature. I may be messing it up a little bit, but basically, and if you're not, you know, you miss the meal, often they'll provide you a lean cuisine um, meal. So that's fairly standard. So I know that at University of Florida Shands Hospital, we used to provide lean cuisine meals uh, in between. So I'm, I'm, pic- I'm picturing like, uh, like fettuccine Alfredo with with uh, chicken breast. Yeah, I mean the ones I have. I don't know exactly what they. So not to speak out of turn, I don't know exactly what the lean cuisine meal is that they're offering, or if it shifts. I can't. I can't speak to that. But that's also the perception I get, and you know maybe I I see something of that in my head as well. But they are the lean cuisine meals. I'm not sure that there's one that's better than the other. To be fair, so. Um, so, yeah, so that's how people were eating. So when I first walked in, there was a room of four or five people, and they were looking at me like, um, this is what I want to do. I want people to start eating this way, uh, and I want us to be a model for the country. And so they looked at me, and they're like, hmm, you're from the north, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from the north. And they're like, yeah. You know, this is the south, and um, you know, we're used to eating a certain way, and um, so I'm not sure these changes, while noble or, or important, are going to be um, received well. So that's what I was told. And, you know, it's about the customer ratings because now, remember, everything's about ratings, right? So hospitals have to get good customer ratings. So if, you're, if you don't offer, for instance, if you don't offer fast food in your cafeteria, then people rebel. They get unhappy. They don't think that that's... Um, that's a good, you know, good offerings. So you get bad ratings. So the part of me that maybe 10 years ago was a little bit more naive and a little bit more opinionated, although I'm pretty opinionated, um, would say, well, uh, look, I don't really care, right, that people would have issues with the customer ratings because it's the wrong thing to do, right? So that's the judgmental part of me to be like, well, look, this is the way we got to do it, and that's the end of the story. Well, that's not what I said, you know, and I slowly deliberately say, well, you know, I understand we're about the customer rating. So let's see if we can offer options that would maybe be healthier that are customer happy, make, make customers happy. And maybe if they knew why they were being asked to eat these foods, it would change their perception. So slowly and slowly, we had these deliberations and conversations, but it took months of, you know, and then tastings. We had to have the nurses tasted. We had so many people try them. And it was interesting because I think the dietary staff was kind of surprised that people really liked it. And they were like, oh my gosh, this food's good, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when they got that feedback, 
they were like, huh, you know, this could actually work. And so you could see their, you know, minds ticking that they kind of were like, oh my gosh, this actually might work. What became interesting is then when we first got it debuted, still it wasn't being used. Like, okay, well, we have it. I mean, there was lots of conflicts. Oh, well, it won't last. You know, it's easy to serve this. If I do this, it's too fresh. It takes too long to prepare. The time that it, by the time it gets to the to the patient, it's going to be cold. I mean, there was just so many issues. We don't know how to cook that way. The percentages aren't written of the fat and the salt. And, you know, all of these things we had to overcome. And these are all things that are very real problems. Or, oh, we can give this to the cardiac patients, but not every, it doesn't apply to everyone. And we shouldn't offer it to all the patients. And it has to be because they have different dietary restrictions or how do you accommodate for um, diabetics or what if their potassium levels are high? You, you know, if you're on high potassium, if you have a high potassium problem, like if you have renal disease, you can't eat that food. Wait, 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 wait. And so going through and explaining all those little details and explaining the nuances, like, wait, no, that's not true. Let's break this down and sort of going through it took time. And um, but finally, I think it just was a turn for them when people started um, catering. So like the office meetings for the hospital meetings, people were catering off our plant based menu. And all of a sudden people were like, huh, you know, wow, people actually are actually seeking this food out. And then slowly and slowly with a little bit of, you know, constant nudging for me and, oh, let's look at this and how, where's the menu and I'm on service in the ICU, I don't see the menu, can you bring it out? Or did the dietary ask? And, you know, I, I was sort of involved at every level. I didn't see the dietary person who came in and delivered the meal did not offer the menu. Why is that? You know, and so we just sort of had to stay on top of it. it you know, it was certainly onerous, but well worth it because... Now it's all over the hospital. Um, it's part of our admission um, orders. So all of our cardiac patients, you check off the menu and that's what their orders. So everybody gets that. There's education now that people are being provided that teaches them why we're doing that. We're still a ways away from where I'd like to be, but we're so much closer. You know, it's about not always focusing on getting to the end, but sort of get, keeping on, keep it on going on the line. Mm -hmm. I mean, a couple of things strike me about that, that story. One is that as you were discussing all the obstacles, I kind of felt like running and smashing my head against the wall repeatedly. Like, like I'm glad it was you and not me, because I, I would have been like, you freaking idiots, don't you? Like, I could feel myself doing a very sort of top-down, I-know-better-than-you approach. And it sounds like, you know, the approach you used with your colleagues is kind of the same approach you use as a doctor with patients to educate and empower and collaborate as opposed to dictate? Well, I think maybe that's just a life lesson that I've learned because I've learned over time and, you know, I raised three children as well. And I've learned that me telling them what to do is not nearly as effective as me showing them that the decision, making them make the decision, but maybe showing them the options that are sort of the way so that the way they'll naturally want to pick the healthier choice or, um, you know, it, it, maybe that's that's what that comes from. I, I certainly have found that I am the best at moving my agenda forward by understanding where the other person comes from, because we're all not the same, you know, and there's still kids at my kid's school that are eating Lunchables. And, um, uh, and you know, and, and I look at that and I think, wow, highly educated people are feeding their kids Lunchables. But I, if you think that way, it comes off so negatively, right? But if you say, well, gosh, you know, why is that person doing that? I wonder what their time constraints are like or what they think is healthy about that meal mm -hmm. that they're providing that food. It comes in, the whole conversation is different. Right. 
And, and the second thing is that because the, the incentives are still in place against you, against healthy meals. And so I'm wondering what, what you think it would take to, you know, to be able to charge appropriately for value-based care as opposed to high-acuity care, uh, to, you know, to feed people so that they get better and don't come back. Yeah, I mean, it, it needs a national agenda for sure in, in sort of moving um, me, you know, in, in insurance companies are, so another problem is think of the disconnect. So if you're a company that insures yourself, so a lot of hospitals are not self-insured. So they have insurance companies that are separate that provide insurance to their employees. But imagine if you were a self-insured hospital like Kaiser, for instance, or some you know local hospitals are self-insured, but they're not many. But if you are, then you keeping your employees and you having these initiatives in place would then actually decrease the number of illnesses, which would then decrease the cost of insurance and the burden on the entire system. Um, but how do you do that for systems that don't have, a, um, they're not self-insured? Um, because they don't aren't invested necessarily in um, healing patients in the in terms of the dollar signs, right? And so when you attach things to dollar signs, people always are more incentivized. I would say. Right, right. I, re- I recently published an interview with the guy uh, Josh Luke, who um, you know talks talks about the problem with the American healthcare system. He says you can sum it up in six words: your insurance will pay for that. Right. There's a- Touche. That is a that's that's exact exactly right. It's um sadly exactly right. Right, like I, I spent like you know six weeks online reading reviews for toasters before I bought one. Like you know I got a value based toaster, believe me. But uh, you know I'm not I'm not I'm not sure I'd ever gotten a value based um, you know a diagnostic test or medical treatment. Right, so you could you could go on and at. Go, go further with that. So something that I deal with every day is why does a hospital system tolerate a person like me? You know, if we're all thinking about if this is all about acuity medicine, why should they take, why should they deal with me? Why should they hire me? Or, you know, I'm not necessarily going to give them more or am I going to give them enough productivity to make it worth it for them? So that's an interesting dilemma for a person like me who wants to see patients like my clinic visits in my prevention clinic are one hour long. Mm. So if I see patients in my acuity clinic, my other clinic, we see them every 15 minutes. So think of the difference in the amount I make in terms of revenue is by far higher in the clinic where I see somebody every 15 minutes. But what was the better value for the patient was, well, of course the one hour visit, but what was the better value for the hospital is the four patients. So that dilemma in healthcare is fundamentally flawed. And I have to think about when you when I ask that question, why would they keep me? Well, it's this other stuff that I do that keeps me profitable, which is why they keep me, not because of my prevention clinic. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think the prevention clinic, they allow me to have it and humor me. You know, they're humoring me to have it because they know it's important to me, but it, you know, it's not something that pays the bills. Right. Well, it might also be good PR. Anything that we can do to get the word out to so then have them support it is all, I'm all for it. Right. So can you imagine like some, you know, enlightened billionaire coming along and saying, I'm going to start an insurance company 
that's going to pay for value as opposed to churn, you know acuity or churn or just getting you know I'll, we'll just make a a percentage of of the uh, procedure. Yeah, you know, any billionaires out there, I need you. Yeah. <laughs> I need you. I need you for so many things to build our programs, to build insurance companies. We, uh, uh, we, yeah. I mean, it would be unbelievable. It, it could change. Um, it could change the whole system and turn it on its head if somebody walked in the door and said, "I'm going to offer value-based care." Mm-hmm. And and in the meantime, you know, you you have your own website. You you uh, co-wrote a book. Um, you and I both contributed to Spudfit's book. Like, you know, it seems it seems like we're also pushing the demand side. Like it's like at some point thinking people are going to wake up and realize that their experience in the medical industry is has maybe has been suboptimal and that there's, there's more that they could and should be asking for. Yeah. I I, uh, I hope that's true. I definitely it's 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 certainly that we're seeing more and more interest and excitement about the initiative. So um, yeah, I hope that that's true. I hope that there is, continues to be more de- demand. And a lot of people who are in this arena with me say that demand will drive the change. I I, I hope that that's true. I, I think that that's true. Um, but it's going to have to be a lot more momentum. And a lot of people are talking about that we're hitting a tipping point with nutrition and. Um, and then it's going to be, it's, it, we're getting to that spot. I, I hope that's true. I think the key is people like you doing these kind of podcasts and, and everybody's sort of getting this message out. And so anybody who will listen, I will talk, you know, Essie and I, uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, we, a lot of us call him Essie. Um, he's, I call him like my dad because I do adore him and his family. And he always says, anyone who will listen to me, I will, uh, I will go to a library and talk because I want people. And I, I totally agree with that. Like, I I just want people to hear the message because then you'll start thinking about it and then you'll say, wait, wait, you may not change. You may not make the change that minute, but over time you will. We'll start turning, turning, you hear a little bit more and you're like, huh, maybe I'll go for that or maybe I'll start changing or maybe I won't pick up that hamburger or maybe I'll actually pick up uh, that hummus wrap that looks a little bit better. Yeah, one of the things I've discovered you know, in, in, in this industry is you know going around trying to sell well start health is like we think like what are the big objections? The big objection is oh I don't think that diabetes is reversible. Mm. Like no I don't think I don't think you can I don't think you can do what you say you can do. Like mm-hmm. that sounds a little too good to be true. And like you know if that's if that's the objection, yeah sure we can, we can give people papers and things and. You know, like we're definitely riding the 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 crest of a very early wave. It's going to take a lot of time. For instance, you know, even though I, on a daily basis, I'm conflicted about the time I spend at work versus being at home with my babies. I also know that I'm things are happening. Like I was asked to write four four hours of medical school curriculum on nutrition. Mm. Well, that doesn't happen very often. And arguably in the entire country, there are very few centers that actually have a medical school curriculum on nutrition sort of in the cardiovascular system. So a part of our two-month system on cardiovascular disease, I'll be giving four sessions, which is unbelievable and, you know, very rare. But um, I know that that's something I should be proud of. Do I want more? Yeah. Do I think it needs to be further? Yeah. But again, that patient, insidious optimism is sort of where we need to be. We just have to be patient and 
keep moving the needle forward or turning the needle or whatever the expression is. Like, <laughs> not as good with the expression now. <laughs> oh, well, you, 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 you hit your peak with the ring and Mr. Schwartz. <laughs> um, so I have one, one more question. So like if we talk about the different elements of lifestyle medicine, there's very little debate about yoga. Like there's not a bunch of people going around saying like yoga or meditation is bad for you. There's not a bunch of people going around saying 30 minutes of exercise a day is a bad idea. But there is a lot of controversy around nutrition, right? So I guess you, you said you did integrative medicine in Arizona. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that was Andrew Wiles. That was Andy, yeah. Um, but he is not um, so focused on the nutrition aspect. Right. But, you know, I've, I've read his stuff like, you know, he's kind of into salmon. and Like there's how do you, you know, it's, it seems to be much easier to try to convince people, look, exercise would be good than to convince people, look, plant-based would be good as opposed to, you know, Mediterranean or keto or uh, Hollywood cookie or what, whatever else, like someone comes up, points to a study and comes up with. How do you deal with like, yeah, we want lifestyle and here's the evidence for plant-based? Well, you know, a lot of times um, I think that that's hard um, for sure. And so you bring up an important problem in our world um, because we don't have a lot of enough. We have data on plant-based nutrition um, but we have a whole lot more data on Mediterranean diet. The keto diet should not be considered. You know, there's loads of data that the keto diet is increases mortality, and that's come out recently, increases rates of AFib. You know, we, we shouldn't even consider the keto diet in that options of sort of healthy health, healthy eating for cardiovascular disease. So, but what people do, uh, I know that that may be mind-blowing because a lot of people do come to me and say, eat the keto, I mean, I'm on keto. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So that I'm, I'm very, so there's certain things that I will say we should definitely just pull out of the equation and say keto is not an option, uh, cardiovascular disease. So if we're talking about Mediterranean versus plant-based diet, I often tell people, I think, it, I think it also has to do with the way you come about it and similarly to how I approach my patients as well. And it's sort of saying, well, yeah, you're right. The data on a Mediterranean diet is very good. So I do believe a Mediterranean diet improves your cardiovascular health, and you will do better than being on a standard Western diet to shifting to a Mediterranean. You will do better. So that's true. But you have to ask, and this is what I often ask people is, I'll ask them, but you have to ask, if that diet is 30% fat, what would happen if we went even a little bit lower and made it 20% or 10% fat, which is what most plant-based diets are? how much more would that curve have gone towards improvement in cardiovascular disease? The reality is we don't have that trial. Eventually, I'm looking for funding um, to ask some of these important questions because until I show that, my cardiology world, my community of cardiologists won't accept it. That's the truth because cardiologists are all about the data. What does the data show? What does the trial show? And it has to be a beautiful trial. It has to be well done with a large number of people. And when we have that trial, then we can blow this out of the water. And in the meantime, we say, we bring up the question, couldn't it be better if we did it this way? And look at some of these smaller studies that show that, look, Esselstyn showed when he did the single, you know, he did this uncontrolled study, but he looked at patients and he put them on a plant-based diet and look what happened to their coronaries and look what happened to the stress test or look at Ornish's data. But, you know, I have heard all of the arguments to the counter. I know what they're going to say. And so I think that part of it is you sort of gently bring it up, put it in their head, the wheels start turning slowly and slowly, 
change will be affected. All right. I, I like I like your vision. <laughs> it's uh, it's not as fast as some people would want, and but I think it's as realistic as I can be because I'm in that world, you know. And I think a lot of the physicians who you know I'm in practice every single day, and so I see and know what it's like out there. I know who I'm working with. I know who I'm against, who's against me. And I think cautiously bringing up conversation is extremely effective. And then slowly and slowly, more and more people are accepting. Now, we published a big article in the Journal of American Cardiology. Uh, um, that's called, we call it JAC, J-A-C-C. That's our biggest impact factor journal and we published an article on heart failure and lifestyle tools. That's never been done. You know, like people don't publish. And Valentin Fuster, who's the editor, he um, put together a whole prevention series. That's mm. also totally new. Like that stuff never would have happened five years ago. So slowly and slowly, even, you know, these set of changes, the fact that they took our journal article and they published it in the biggest cardiology journal is huge. And so it's just now more and more people are like, huh. Lifestyle changes for heart failure. I never thought about it. And so I get asked to do grand rounds on that topic. And then again, more physicians are hearing. So slowly and slowly, that's how we're going to change. We're going to change it. Right. Well, I guess, um, you know, good ideas have a, sometimes have a very long gestational period. <laughs> that's a nice so, thing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have the patient, the patience to bring them to term. I, I hope so. I, I don't know. We'll have to see how long it stays in in, in utero <laughs> <laughs> before it's clinging clinging on your foot. I know, right? right. Well, <laughs> how how can people uh, follow your work? Stay in touch with you. Um, well, that's nice of you to ask. So, um, so I have a website, drmonicaagarwal.com, but I have to admit that I'm not good about maintaining it um, because it just takes a lot of work, and I haven't been as good about it. So I try to use um, Twitter and Instagram. So, and what is my handle? I am uh, Twitter. I'm at StrongHeartDoc, um, StrongHeartDoc, and Instagram is just Dr. Monica Agarwal. And I do have a Facebook page um, that I also use. So I try to post on all of those cool things that I see. Like the other day, I posted a picture. I was sitting at the bus stop. You'll love this one. I was sitting at the bus stop waiting for the bus to take me because I, I had gone on a huge workout in the morning and I just was super sore and was like, I didn't want to walk the mile and a half to my, my hospital. And I was like feeling lazy that moment. I, I admit it. There was my, I <laughs> threw it out there. So, so I just, it was an intense workout. So I was waiting for the bus and I was, and I took a picture of every single of the people standing there and every single person at the um, bus stop was looking at their phone. Mm. And I thought, wow, is this what this is what's happening to our society? Like what happened to moments of contemplation and reflection, moments of pause? They're no longer there. So these are the things I post. It's kind of fun. And then I post an interesting article. Um, so that's how I try to keep people uh, connected with what I'm doing. Um, and then there's the book, Finding Balance, that we wrote. And that truly is um, maybe a little bit dense, like parts of it are a little bit complex, but I, I felt I had to write a book that not only honored my daughter, but also I wanted to put the science in there so that people who are really wanted to know the clinical trials and the data, I, I wanted them to know that it wasn't, I'm not a hack, that there is real data out here. Look at this, come Google this, spend some time on this. So, um, who's, who's that book for? Uh, that book is for my daughter, Asha. So my daughter, Asha, I always say, 
That book is written for Asha because she was my third child who um, I blamed for getting sick. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of readership, like what? <clears throat> oh, who's the, oh, so who's it for readership wise? I would say it's for the informed patient uh, or the informed layperson, which basically means somebody who wants to know more about the sci- a little bit of the science, but also wants to be provided the tools to get better. So I try to go through and give a little prescription at the end of each chapter and say, um, you know, these are the things we want you to focus on, read about this. And people come in with the book all the time and they've highlighted all this stuff and they say, you know, like, what do you think about this? And how should I add this? And so it's kind of cool. So, but it's definitely um, the foundational book. People have asked me to write a primer to say, okay, these are the, this is what you should do on day one, day two, day three. Uh, and I've definitely heard that. And at some point, uh, maybe that'll happen. Uh-huh. So in other words, it's a basic it's a sort, of, sort of lifestyle for health. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't, it's not just for rheumatoid arthritis, which is what I had. Uh, it's definitely geared towards chronic illness in general, and it kind of goes through how people get sick, because that is the fundamental misunderstanding, because I thought that I just got sick because I had bad luck, mm-hmm. or um, like, why me, that concept of why me, well, why not me, I was the perfect person to get sick, I was a crazy person, <laughs> you know, but understand that about yourself and understand about sympathetic overdrive and how we don't give our bodies enough time to rest and recover and how the imbalance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems is what causes imbalance, which causes inflammation. And to understand those key concepts makes you understand why everybody gets sick. And so it's just, uh, that I think is so fundamental. And so I always tell people, read chapter five and six, because that is how you understand why we got sick and then we shift to say look these are the tools we you're you're not out there and you're screwed you have choices you have choices to make it's whether you're able to rise to that that's the key beautiful hey are you are you coming to uh to raleigh in may to uh peapod i don't know about that oh the plant-based uh prevention of disease conference no oh i don't think so i i don't think i may no okay I was trying to figure out when when I could get you to sign the book. Oh, that's kind of you. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think that um, I'm still. Or can we do this as off label or on on video or off? Can we do this as off video? Sure, sure. We can, we can talk about it afterwards. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I'm not, yeah, I don't want to share your schedule with the world. <laughs> All right. Well, let's yeah. So let's let's wrap this up. So, Dr. Monica Agarwal. Amazing conversation. I'm so glad it went in all these unexpected directions. I'm not sure how you're going to describe it in your synopsis of it because it was really all over the place. Oh, that's all right. We'll uh, we'll make something up. I'll find a key. But again, thank you so much for taking the time and for 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 all you're doing to to you know to push this movement forward and into the mainstream. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll just put one little tag in: is that. There is a video out there that does show about the about what we're doing at UF, which is a fun one to watch because sometimes I watch it to re-inspire me because I, I think right. it's really inspiring. That was made by, by by Martin and Full Sail, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was exactly. great. That was a nice video, and I, I like it because it makes me feel like, oh yeah, we are really doing something. You know, every day that I feel frustrated that I'm not getting far enough, I like seeing that video and saying, okay, we are getting somewhere. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Monica Agarwal, again, thank you for everything. And let's, uh, let's stay in touch. Okay. Sounds great. 
All right. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. If you want to know how to do that, go to plantyourself.com slash review for a quick one-minute video tutorial. For more information about WellStart Health, check out wellstarthealth.com. And if you'd like to get Dr. Agarwal's book or find out more about her and her mission, you can check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 314. There's also uh, the YouTube video of our conversation and a short video made by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and Martin Tull and Full Sail University on Dr. Agarwal's work introducing a plant-based menu. By the way, Dr. Agarwal's website also has some pretty good recipes. We made a uh, vegan um, spaghetti bolognese the other night from her website, and it was, it was amazing. Okay, so if you're new to the show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com, and hopefully soon those will be easier and quicker to access when I shift to that more expensive hosting. In garden news, St. Patty's Day has come and gone, and so the peas are going in this week. And the little nanking cherry bushes in the back of the garden are flowering now, and they are quite lovely. In running news, just starting to get back, I did six miles on the tobacco trail on Sunday morning after uh, playing in an ultimate Frisbee scrimmage on Saturday morning for almost two hours. So I'm starting to get my legs back. It's it's disheartening to realize how quickly um, cardio fitness can go, but it's also, you know, good to know how quickly it can come back. So uh, no, no worries there. I'll be, I'll be back. I'll find a race and uh, hopefully I'll be back up to speed quite soon. So thank you to all you listeners out there who are causing me to need uh, better hosting. It's amazing to think that when I look at my statistics, um, I've just, you know, I've outgrown this platform and it's thanks to you. It's thanks to you listening, coming back week after week, subscribing, spreading the word. And of course, thanks to all of you who uh, become patrons of the show and help support it financially. I'll get to your names in just a second. But first, thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dom, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his music. And now my lungs are back and I'm going to do the names again. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tanny Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filipinovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ronson Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Venom, Gail Lissert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Daron Lavizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rudlid, Julian Watlin, Reed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosalind, Dayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedekar, Dizatuzanwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Rich of 
Ooh, let's try that one again. Alicia Davis of Eva La El, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Byrd, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leedon, Patty DiMartino. Mike and Donna Cards, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heddine, and Meg from Mama Says. Thanks for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Tarona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leedon. Petty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>